One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover inside the house there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money. Up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. On November 22, 1963, a single gunshot changed the course of American history when Lee Harvey Oswald assassinated President John F. Kennedy. This horrific day is notorious not just for its tragic events, but also for the numerous conspiracy theories that have swirled around it. The grassy knoll, the magic bullet, the Zapruder film. These are just some of the terms associated with the idea that there was more to Kennedy's death than the government has let on. But one item that many people aren't familiar with is a document referred to as the Burned Memo. Like many other JFK assassination theories, the Burned Memo hints that the CIA had a hand in Kennedy's death. But it wasn't because he was weak on communism or had botched the Bay of Pigs invasion. It was because he was going to reveal the truth about what the American government knew about UFOs. Are we alone? Have we been alone? Will we be alone? Stories of alien visitation have been ingrained in human history. Alien life may not be confirmed, but our obsession with it can't be ignored. Welcome to Extraterrestrial, a ParCast original. I'm Tim. And I'm Bill. Every Tuesday, we visit the marvelous and strange stories about our encounters with beings from another world. We're aware that some of these tales may seem completely unbelievable. Others may seem all too real. But these stories shed light on human nature, human beliefs, and human psychology. And each story has garnered hundreds, if not millions, of true believers. And for that reason, we think they're worth exploring. Welcome to our second and final episode on the extraterrestrial theories surrounding the Apollo missions. Last week, we examined suspected UFO encounters that occurred during the Apollo 10 and 11 moon missions. We discussed strange events such as the outer space music the Apollo 10 astronauts Thomas Stafford, Gene Cernan, and John Young heard over the far side of the moon. 
We also examined the unidentified object the Apollo 11 astronauts Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins saw as they flew towards the moon, and how it spawned demonstrably false stories about lunar bases and powerful monoliths. This week, we'll be going back to the origins of the Apollo missions and examining whether John F. Kennedy's desire to put a man on the moon may have been fueled by the pursuit of alien technology and whether his ideas of cooperation and openness with other countries may have led to his tragic death. This episode is part of ParCast's Summer of 69 event. July 22nd through August 9th, all your favorite ParCast shows are teaming up to commemorate the 50th anniversary of a landmark summer in American history, the summer of 1969. From the Manson murders to the moon landing, we're diving deep into the summer America hit a boiling point with 23 special episodes across 16 different ParCast originals. We'll be digging into the fallout of MLK's assassination, a wide-reaching LSD cult, and rumors of a Kennedy family cover-up. You can find these specials and more all on our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. From the outset of America's foray into outer space, the government was concerned with the possibility of encountering extraterrestrial life. When NASA was founded on July 29, 1959, one of its core objectives was to study the long-term implications that peaceful space exploration could have for humanity. To that end, in the late summer of 1959, NASA commissioned a research group called the Brookings Institute to write a report identifying a wide range of studies in the social sciences that could be made of the potential benefits and problems arising from the peaceful use of space. After about a year and a half of research, the report, which became commonly known as the Brookings Report, was delivered to the White House in December 1960. One of the sections in the 160-page document covered the, quote, implications of a discovery of extraterrestrial life. According to the report, it is conceivable that there is semi-intelligent life in some part of our solar system or highly intelligent life, which is not technologically oriented. And many cosmologists and astronomers think it's very likely that there is intelligent life in many other solar systems. Although the Brookings researchers thought it unlikely that contact with an intelligent extraterrestrial civilization would, quote, occur within the next 20 years, unless its technology is far more advanced than ours, qualifying it to visit Earth, artifacts left at some point in time by these life forms might possibly be discovered through our space activities on the Moon, Mars, or Venus. Furthermore, the report added that, quote, if there is any contact to be made during the next 20 years, it would most likely be by radio, which would indicate that these beings had at least our own technological level. The report's writers hoped that the knowledge that life existed in other parts of the universe might lead to a greater unity of men on Earth. 
But they were also concerned with how the discovery of extraterrestrial life would be released to the public. The Brookings researchers asked, how might such information be presented to or withheld from the public and for what ends? What might be the role of the discovering scientists and the other decision-makers regarding release of the fact of discovery? However, due to the change in presidential administrations between Dwight D. Eisenhower and John F. Kennedy, the Brookings Report wasn't released to Congress until April 18, 1961. About a week after the report's release, Kennedy made his thoughts on the possibility of withholding information very clear in a speech known as the President and the Press. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweighed the dangers which are cited to justify it. Although Kennedy's speech was addressing the recent Bay of Pigs fiasco, during which a U.S.-backed rebellion in Cuba had failed, his desire to have as much open communication as possible with the American public could just as easily apply to the recently released Brookings reports. But in the very same speech, Kennedy tackled the apparent hypocrisy of needing occasional government secrecy when it came to national security. Nevertheless, every democracy recognizes the necessary restraints of national security. And the question remains whether those restraints need to be more strictly observed if we are to oppose this kind of attack as well as outright invasion. Here, the potential invasion Kennedy was describing was by the Soviet Union, but some ufologists have interpreted his words as priming the American people for the dangers of the USA's impending foray into space. Less than a month after his President and the Press speech, Kennedy announced his desire to have a man walk on the moon in an address to Congress on May 25, 1961. To most observers, Kennedy's announcement was a direct challenge to the Soviet Union, which had become the first country to successfully send a man into space just over a month earlier, on April 12, 1961. Kennedy seemingly backed up this sentiment in meetings with his staff. On November 21, 1962, he told NASA director James Webb that, this is, whether we like it or not, a race. Everything we do in space ought to be tied into getting to the moon ahead of the Russians. But Kennedy's private actions indicated that perhaps there was a greater reason to go to the moon than simply winning the space race. On June 3rd and 4th of 1961, Kennedy met with the Soviet premier Nikita Khrushchev in Vienna, Austria. On the surface, the purpose of this summit was for both sides to discuss the many issues between the two global superpowers. According to a 2015 article on NASA's official website by John M. Logsdon, on the first day of meetings, Kennedy pulled Khrushchev aside for a private talk. During this brief exchange, Kennedy suggested that the USA and USSR should combine forces and send a man to the moon together. This was a shocking departure from his public stance on using the space race as a way to show superiority over the Soviet Union. Many ufologists believe that Kennedy's secret proposal to Khrushchev meant that there was something threatening enough on the moon that it warranted working together with America's greatest enemy. And whatever it was, 
It was enough of a danger to lead him to keep his plan secret for the time being. However, there was also another, more practical reason Kennedy might have wanted to keep his suggestion under wraps. His young presidency was off to a rough start. The failed Bay of Pigs invasion had been a huge embarrassment, and to Kennedy's opponents, it was evident that he was incapable of going toe-to-toe with Khrushchev and the USSR. If word got out that Kennedy was offering an olive branch to Russia, his reputation might never recover, and his administration could have been effectively over before it had even begun. But perhaps Kennedy was more focused on the greater good of humanity than on his own political career. Maybe his offer to Khrushchev was fueled by the Brookings Report's conclusion that if an alien civilization was discovered, it could be a unifying force for mankind. Kennedy may have agreed with this conclusion, but apparently Khrushchev did not. On the second day of meetings, Khrushchev told Kennedy that the Soviet Union would not agree to conduct a joint mission to the moon with the United States. His reasoning was decidedly earthbound. Khrushchev insisted that before the two countries could go to space together, they had to come to an agreement regarding nuclear disarmament. He had a point. It would be difficult for the USA and USSR to unite forces in space if they were still at odds on Earth. Maybe Kennedy believed a joint lunar mission would be a good first step towards eventual peace between the two superpowers. Or maybe he thought that the threat of whatever was on the moon was so great that it transcended earthly squabbles. The general sentiment from the Vienna summit was that Kennedy badly bungled his meetings with Khrushchev. Shortly after the summit ended, Kennedy told a New York Times reporter that the summit was, quote, the worst thing in my life. He savaged me. JFK himself admitted that he had been underprepared for the meetings. According to University of Southern California journalism professor Richard Reeves, Kennedy didn't listen to his own advisors. He had no idea how tough it would be. Perhaps Kennedy's proposal to combine moon missions was a moment of weakness against a powerful opponent, or maybe he believed that cooperation in space could lead to cooperation on Earth. Regardless of his intent, Kennedy had to abandon his idea for a combined moon mission to deal with the incredibly complex political maneuvers of the Cuban Missile Crisis. On October 14, 1962, an American U-2 spy plane photographed Soviet SS-4 medium-range nuclear ballistic missiles being constructed in Cuba. With Cuba located only 90 miles away from the Florida coast, these missiles represented a huge threat to the United States. They could reach over two-thirds of the USA within three minutes. If they were unleashed, the missiles could have killed up to 80 million American citizens. Kennedy knew that for the moment, he had to put aside his goal of working with the Soviet Union in the interests of the American people. No matter how great the threat of alien technology on the moon might be to American citizens, the threat of Soviet missiles in Cuba was even greater. After a week of deliberations, Kennedy announced on October 22, 1962, that he had ordered the Navy to blockade Cuba to stop the Soviets from delivering any additional weaponry. 
Two days later, on October 24th, Russian ships approached the blockade. Ultimately, they decided not to attempt to breach the American line. Nuclear war had been avoided for the moment. Coming up, John F. Kennedy continues his push for a joint American-Soviet lunar mission. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Now, back to the story. In the autumn of 1962, both the United States and Russia were gearing up for a diplomatic and military standoff over the placement of missiles in Cuba. The situation worsened as the year neared its end. On October 27th, an American reconnaissance plane was shot down over Cuba. After this act of aggression, Kennedy ordered the military to prepare the necessary forces to invade Cuba. Khrushchev blinked first. He offered to dismantle the missiles in Cuba, and in exchange, the U.S. privately agreed to remove their missiles in Turkey. Although the negotiations were short, they represented some of the highest stakes diplomacy the United States had ever faced. It was a decisive success for Kennedy and got him the respect from Khrushchev he believed he deserved. The Cuban Missile Crisis may have been the most significant conflict in the Cold War, but it also represented a turning point in American-Soviet relations. On August 30, 1963, a direct line of communication was established between the U.S. and USSR, symbolized by the iconic red phone. Although the Cold War was far from over, Kennedy was prepared to once again propose a joint moon mission between the two countries. Despite the clear hostility the Soviet Union had shown during the Cuban Missile Crisis, Kennedy was still prepared to work towards a joint lunar mission. Whatever was out there was that important to him. The only question was whether Khrushchev felt the same way. After the Cuban Missile Crisis in late October 1962, relations between the United States and the Soviet Union began to improve. By August 1963, Kennedy felt comfortable enough to once again privately propose a joint mission to the moon between the two superpowers. Even though the USA and USSR had almost gone to war the year before, Kennedy was committed to working together in space. 
On August 26, 1963, four days before a so-called hotline between the USA and USSR would be installed, Kennedy met with the Russian ambassador Anatoly Dobrynin in the Oval Office. The two men discussed a wide range of topics, including China, nuclear testing, Germany, Laos, Cuba, trade, civil aviation agreements, and space. Once again, Kennedy suggested a joint lunar mission between the two countries. According to a 1997 interview with Khrushchev's son, Sergei, the Soviet premier was seriously considering accepting Kennedy's offer. Before moving forward, Kennedy wanted to be sure he'd have NASA support in the event that Khrushchev accepted his proposal. On September 18, 1963, Kennedy met with NASA chief James Webb, and they briefly discussed Kennedy's desire to conduct a joint mission. Of course, Kennedy didn't need Webb's permission to combine forces with the USSR, but it was important to have Webb as an ally rather than an adversary. When Kennedy broached the idea of cooperating with the Soviet Union, Webb indicated it would be all right with him. Two days later, on September 20, 1963, Kennedy finally made his intentions regarding the lunar mission known to the public in a speech to the UN General Assembly. Finally, in a field where the United States and the Soviet Union have a special capacity in the field of space, there is room for new cooperation, for further joint efforts in the regulation and exploration of space. I include among these possibilities a joint expedition to the moon. Kennedy had made good on the resolution to be more open with the American public that he had made in his President and the Press speech over two years earlier. Perhaps with the Cuban Missile Crisis firmly in the rearview mirror, Kennedy finally felt comfortable publicly discussing his true desires for cooperation with the Soviet Union. But there was still a limit to Kennedy's transparency. If the reason for the joint mission had to do with alien technology on the moon, he remained silent about it for the time being. If there really was alien technology on the moon, it could cause widespread panic if Kennedy divulged everything he knew. Or maybe he didn't know exactly what was on the moon and preferred to stay silent until he knew the extent of what the Apollo astronauts might encounter there. According to Sergei Khrushchev, his father was fully prepared to go forward with Kennedy's plan. And despite opposition Kennedy was facing at home, he was fully committed to moving forward with it as well. On November 12, 1963, Kennedy issued a memo to NASA Director James Webb titled, Cooperation with the USSR on Outer Space Matters. In the memo, Kennedy instructed Webb to, quote, assume personally the initiative and central responsibility for the development of a program of substantive cooperation with the Soviet Union in the field of outer space. Kennedy added, quote, I would like an interim report on the progress of our planning by December 15th. Tragically, Kennedy never got a chance to see Webb's first report. On November 22nd, 1963, Ten days after writing the memo, John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. After Kennedy's death, his successor, Lyndon B. Johnson, scrapped all plans of a joint lunar mission with the USSR. 
cooperation with the Soviets was out the window, the space race was officially back on. Although he had been Kennedy's vice president, Johnson had a much more hardline approach when it came to the Soviet Union. Since the late 1950s, he had been extremely concerned with the possibility of the Soviet Union placing weapons in space. If there was alien technology on the moon, Johnson wanted to be sure the Soviets didn't get it. Shortly after winning re-election in November 1964, he said, I do not believe that this generation of Americans is willing to resign itself to going to bed by the light of a communist moon. By the time Johnson was in office, the USA had pulled ahead of the USSR in space technology. He felt extremely confident that America would get to the moon first. And as NASA inched closer to developing the technology needed to get there, they had to decide where the astronauts would land. On November 6, 1966, NASA launched an unmanned spacecraft called Lunar Orbiter 2 to photograph potential landing sites on the moon. The photos the orbiter took were available to the public, and on November 23, 1966, the Washington Post ran an article describing photos that contained, quote, six mysterious statuesque shadows. According to the article, quote, ranging from one about 20 feet long to another as long as 75 feet, the six shadows were hailed by scientists as one of the most unusual features of the moon ever photographed. Scientists said they have no idea what is casting the shadows. The largest shadow is just the sort that would be cast by something resembling the Washington Monument. On February 1, 1967, a member of Boeing's biotechnology unit named William Blair told the LA Times that if the structures had been discovered on Earth, it would be assumed that they were artificial in nature and may have archaeological significance. When Blair analyzed the structures further, he discovered that they formed what appeared to be a geometric pattern made of right angle and isosceles triangles. In his mind, this pattern indicated that there was some purpose behind the structure's layout and that they weren't natural formations. These structures, which became known as the Blair Cuspids, were located at the western edge of the Sea of Tranquility, about 300 kilometers from where the Apollo 11 astronauts would land in the summer of 1969. Although the Blair Cuspids certainly had a strange appearance, most scientists agreed that they were nothing more than interesting formations on the lunar surface, and their proximity to the Apollo 11 landing site was merely a coincidence. Additionally, 300 kilometers isn't exactly walking distance. The farthest Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin went from the lunar module was 60 meters. Furthermore, the astronauts didn't collect any photographs of the Blair cuspids from orbit. However, ufologists such as Ivan T. Sanderson continued to believe that the Blair cuspids were artificial structures. In 1970, Sanderson wrote an article in Argosy magazine describing lunar structures he believed were the work of intelligent beings. This theory seemed to be supported by stories like the mysterious space music the Apollo 10 astronauts heard and the alleged UFO encounters Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong had when they explored the lunar surface. 
However, concrete proof that the government was hiding something was elusive. In 1999, though, 30 years after Neil Armstrong became the first man to walk on the moon, the proof that the government was covering up what it knew about UFOs finally arrived. And even more incredibly, it was tied in to the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Coming up, we investigate the possibility that Kennedy was assassinated because of what he knew about UFOs. You have goals. Reach them fast with IU Online's accelerated degree programs. Our six and eight week courses are taught 100% online and can fit any schedule. Advance your career with a bachelor's in informatics. It only takes 10 minutes to apply. Earn an Indiana University degree that's valued around the world. Get started today at IU Online. And now, the conclusion of our story. In late November 1966, ufologists discovered photos of what could possibly be artificial structures on the moon. Three years later, the Apollo 11 astronauts landed less than 300 kilometers from where these structures, known as the Blair Cuspids, were located. Although NASA insisted the Blair Cuspids were natural formations and their proximity to the Apollo 11 landing site was a mere coincidence, many within the UFO community continued to suspect the government was concealing the presence of alien technology on the moon. But on June 23, 1999, a ufologist named Timothy Cooper received a package that would change how the UFO community viewed the lunar missions forever. The package, sent by an anonymous source claiming to be a retired CIA counterintelligence agent, contained the pages of a charred nine-page memo. In a letter accompanying the memo, the anonymous agent said the papers had belonged to James Angleton, the director of CIA counterintelligence from 1954 to 1975. After Angleton died in 1987, the anonymous agent claimed responsibility for burning his top secret papers. However, there was one document in particular that the agent couldn't burn, a memo that revealed Kennedy's assassination was connected to UFOs. According to the letter, the agent literally grabbed the papers from the fire before they could become completely consumed. Cooper couldn't believe his eyes. The anonymous agent's letter that accompanied the memo didn't explicitly state why they had chosen Cooper to receive this information, but Cooper suspected it was because of his long-standing interest in both the Kennedy assassination and UFOs. For a little over 10 years, Cooper had been making Freedom of Information Act requests for documents on the Kennedy assassination. Passed in 1967, this act requires federal agencies to disclose any information requested by an American citizen, unless it could be harmful to a governmental or private interest. With much of the information regarding the Kennedy assassination still highly classified, Cooper's requests had gone unanswered. Cooper was also involved in the UFO community, and his request for information on that subject had also gone ignored. But judging by the content of the agent's letter, although Cooper's Freedom of Information Act requests had been ignored, they hadn't gone unnoticed. 
As a private investigator, Cooper had worked on many UFO cases, including research on the Roswell incident of 1947, when many ufologists believed an alien spacecraft had crashed in the New Mexico desert. He believed he was on the government's radar, which is how the agent had chosen him. Cooper's hands trembled as he gingerly flipped through the crisp pages of the nine-page memo, which was written by the director of the CIA, John McCone. One phrase in particular nearly made Cooper's heart stop. Quote, as you must know, Lancer has made some inquiries regarding our activities that we cannot allow. The reason this phrase was so significant was that Lancer was Kennedy's Secret Service code name. Clearly, the CIA director was concerned about Kennedy learning about something he shouldn't. Apparently, that topic was UFOs. Another page of the memo was labeled Directive Regarding President's Eyes Only. It read, quote, in the likely event that the subject of unidentified flying objects or unconventional aerial weapons is a subject matter under discussion with the chief executive, under no circumstances should a member suggest that the subject is classified as a national security threat." End quote. So there was implication here that Kennedy didn't yet know everything that the CIA knew. Evidently, Kennedy was not privy to whatever the government knew about UFOs, and the CIA was desperate to keep it that way. So desperate, in fact, that they were willing to end Kennedy's life. The memo's final page contained a cryptic message, quote, when conditions become non-conducive for growth in our environment and Washington cannot be influenced any further, the weather is lacking any precipitation it could be wet. On the surface, this message seems like complete nonsense. However, to a trained eye, its contents are all too clear. The phrase wet works is spy jargon for assassination. The insinuation was that if Kennedy couldn't be convinced to stop looking into UFOs, the CIA would have to assassinate him. After reading the memo, Cooper called his ufology partner, Robert Wood, a retired physicist who had worked as the aerospace manager for the contracting firm McDonnell Douglas. After Cooper told him about the memo, Wood quickly made the two-hour drive from Newport Beach to Cooper's house in Big Bear Lake, California. Looking at what they dubbed the burned memo together, Cooper and Wood estimated that the document, which was not dated, was probably written by CIA Director John McCone sometime around September 1963. Kennedy made his stunning announcement to the UN about his desire to conduct a joint lunar mission with the Soviet Union on September 22, 1963. In the first page of the memo, the author asks the recipients to submit their views on this proposal no later than October. So Cooper and Wood concluded that the memo must have been written shortly after Kennedy's speech. Perhaps the month-long gap between Kennedy's UN speech and his directive to James Webb to begin pursuing avenues for a joint lunar mission was because John McCone and his fellow conspirators 
were trying to convince Kennedy not to look too deeply into UFOs. But then, when Kennedy decided to go forward with his plan and presumably share whatever alien technology they found on the moon with the Soviets, the CIA decided to take drastic measures. According to Robert Wood, a forensics company had tested the ink on the memo to determine its age. Apparently, the results confirmed that the ink dated to sometime around the time Cooper and Wood had estimated the memo was written, 1963. However, Wood has never actually made the results public, and they have never been confirmed. While it would be thrilling if the burned memo was authentic, all evidence points to it being a hoax. The biggest indication that the memo is probably fake is the extensive references to MJ-12, the supposed secret government organization in charge of keeping UFOs and other extraterrestrial information hidden from the public. As we mentioned in last week's episode and have covered in other podcasts, MJ-12 is almost certainly not real. Although the FBI officially confirmed MJ-12 was fake in 1988, Many ufologists have a deep distrust of the government and still believe that the shadowy organization exists. However, it's not just the mentions of MJ-12 that indicate the burned memo is a hoax. A major tip-off is that the memo refers to Kennedy as Lancer. While this was his Secret Service codename, the CIA designation for Kennedy was GPI Deal. Additionally, the fact that such a memo would even exist is highly unlikely. Although there have been instances of top-secret information being leaked because it was put on paper, such as the Pentagon Papers, putting a plot to assassinate the president in writing is on a completely different level. Also, if by some chance the burned memo was authentic, there's almost no way Jim Angleton would have been foolish enough to keep it in his files and not destroy it immediately after reading it. But for those who continue to believe that the burned memo was authentic, their case was bolstered in 2011 when paranormal researcher William Lester revealed he had obtained another memo that confirmed Kennedy's interest in UFOs. Unlike the burned memo, which was supposedly sent by an anonymous counterintelligence agent, Lester claimed he had obtained his document from the CIA via the Freedom of Information Act. The memo titled, Classification Review of All UFO Intelligence Files Affecting National Security, was written from Kennedy to CIA Director John McCone on November 12, 1963, the same day Kennedy ordered James Webb to begin researching ways to conduct a joint lunar mission with the USSR. In the memo, Kennedy wrote, I have instructed James Webb to develop a program with the Soviet Union in joint space and lunar exploration. It would be very helpful if you would have the high threat cases reviewed with the purpose of identification of bona fide, as opposed to classified, CIA and USAF sources. It is important that we make a clear distinction between the knowns and unknowns in the event the Soviets try to mistake our extended cooperation as a cover for intelligence gathering of their defense and space programs. Although Kennedy didn't explicitly refer to UFOs by name, Lester believed he was trying to figure out the distinction between authentic UFO cases 
and accidental sightings of classified American military aircraft. Kennedy was also planning on sharing that information about the UFOs with the Soviet Union. If this was the case, then this new memo could be the so-called missing link that supported the theory that the CIA was behind Kennedy's assassination. However, there are reasons to believe that this memo is also a fake. According to a research technician at the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library, there wasn't a copy of the memo in the archives. And there's little chance that the archives are incomplete. The technician, who wished to remain anonymous, told journalist Natalie Walchover in 2011 that JFK kept carbon copies of all his letters, even those that were classified. Furthermore, the technician pointed out that the memo was, quote, sanitized in very odd places. The director's name, the top heading of the document, which usually distinguishes which agency is generating it, and the tiny top secret print at the top of the letter. Top secret items are usually stamped in large dark ink on the letter. Finally, the signature on the memo is redacted, although Kennedy's printed name was not. If the point was to conceal his identity, then all mentions of Kennedy's name would have probably been redacted. Additionally, if the memo was obtained through a Freedom of Information Act request, there's little chance that it could have come from anywhere other than the Kennedy Library. Any document procured through the Freedom of Information Act has to be through an official source, which in this case would have been the Kennedy Library. The most logical explanation regarding this memo is that it was a fake. Unfortunately, in the end, there's no concrete proof that John F. Kennedy's death had anything to do with alien technology or UFOs. However, that isn't to say there wasn't anything strange about his behavior when it came to arranging the joint lunar mission with the Soviet Union. The fact that he would first propose the possibility to Khrushchev shortly after the Brookings report was released was definitely somewhat odd and Kennedy's continued efforts to arrange the joint mission show that it was definitely an important goal for him. But aside from bizarre formations on the lunar surface and the false stories about UFO encounters Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin had during their mission, the question is if there are any legitimate incidents that astronauts had that can point to any extraterrestrial activity on the moon. One event that particularly stands out is the moon music that the Apollo 10 astronauts heard in May 1969 as they crossed the far side of the moon. As we discussed in last week's episode, the strange event baffled the Apollo 10 crew. But after returning into communications range with mission control, they decided not to say anything. Although the audio tapes and transcripts from the mission were officially declassified in 1976, they were somewhat difficult to obtain because they could only be accessed at NASA's official library in Washington, D.C. But in 2016, NASA digitized the tapes and released them online, making it incredibly easy for anyone to listen to what the Apollo 10 astronauts heard. With this accessibility came the explanation of what caused the mysterious music. Apparently, the sound was caused by radio interference between the command module and the lunar module. The reason that the astronauts hadn't anticipated this happening 
was that Apollo 10 was the first time both vehicles were orbiting the moon at the same time. With that question answered, the only unexplained event relating to the Apollo missions was the object that the Apollo 11 astronauts saw on their approach to the moon. Although Buzz Aldrin was certain that the object was just a panel that had separated from the lunar module during separation from one of their booster rockets, there was no way to officially verify what the object was. Therefore, even though the object probably wasn't a spacecraft, it remains an unidentified flying object in the truest sense of the term. With all the information available to us, we can also rate the believability of the extraterrestrial elements of the Apollo missions on a scale of 1 to 10. Ultimately, there just isn't any evidence that there were any actual UFO encounters during the Apollo missions. Additionally, there's no real indication that John F. Kennedy's assassination had anything to do with aliens. Although his desire to conduct a joint lunar mission with the Soviet Union could have been motivated by the Brookings Report's conclusion that the discovery of alien life could unify humanity, there simply isn't any actual evidence to support that theory. In the end, the believability factor for this case is a one. The Apollo missions were one of the most incredible feats in all of human history. When all is said and done, adding aliens to the equation almost cheapens the achievement of putting a man on the moon. But with new discoveries being made in space every day, such as the recent photograph of a black hole, maybe someday humanity will make contact with an alien species. They just probably will be further away than the moon. Thanks again for tuning in to our Extraterrestrial Summer of 69 special. If you enjoyed this episode, check out ParCast's continued retrospective into the Summer of 69. From July 22nd through August 9th, the Summer of 69 will feature 23 special episodes across 16 different podcasts covering everything from Vietnam War protests to the Zodiac Killer. We'll be back with a new episode of Extraterrestrial next week. If you're interested in learning more about the Summer of 69, be sure to check out our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Extraterrestrial was created by Max Cutler. It's a production of Cutler Media and part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Extraterrestrial was written by Alex Benedin and stars Bill Thomas and Tim Johnson. 